One of the many profound passages in the prophecy of Isaiah is this one that's in Isaiah 40 and verses 10 through 18. In Isaiah 40, verse 10, we read, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? I've always found the imagery of that last part of this section of Isaiah intriguing. The merchant clears a scale of whatever's been weighed out and a little insignificant residue that no one notices or cares about remains on the plate of the scale. But everything's been wiped off that's important. You load up the billions of people that make up our world. And in the eyes of him whose immensity cannot be fathomed, who himself fills heaven and earth, in the eyes of the one who says, can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord, do I not fill heaven and earth? To him, the whole of that, gathering all the nations together, is like nothing more than that insignificant dust left on the plate of the scale when it's brushed off and cleared away. Some men and women dwelling in the midst of the dust look about and they see so many grains about them, grains of sand, that they panic and wonder if there's any room for more. But God, looking on his creation, sees the whole of the nations as nothing more than the moisture that remains in the bottom of the bucket after it's been emptied, or at least everyone thinks it's been emptied. But there's still a little moisture in there, a little droplet or so. And that's the whole of the nations in his eyes. Now, when you break that down, 
it becomes stunning to see how insignificant each individual is during his or her time among the nations. If that's the way he perceives the whole of the nations, then what are we in our own time in the midst of one of those nations? You are nevertheless, according to his promise, the object of his eternal love and care. He makes it abundantly clear, both in his word and his providence, that despite this is the way the nations appear before him, his eye is on you for good. Not generally, but specifically. So here you are in the midst of this grand insignificance, even more insignificant, and yet his love, his care rests on you. And not just in a general way where he makes it rain on the just and the unjust, on the unjust, but specifically loves and cares for you, and he makes it known through the promise of his word and through his providence, where he orders things in certain ways that you know are designed just for you. But this is the hand of God in your life. It's, it's his hand upon you. It's his direction. It's his work. Now, we could spend a bit of time offering the scriptural evidence for this, and we could do it beginning with what David says in Psalm 139 about uh, our being formed in the womb and the eye and hand of God being upon us. But because the evidence is so profound, and we're looking at something a little different this afternoon, just going to merely accept this as fact and move on. We know it, we believe it, we, we understand it to be true. Now, with that in mind, let's look at the text that's before us, Matthew chapter 8 and verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And then we have all that follows with the men coming and pursuing him. When you look at that statement that Jesus, when Jesus saw that there was a crowd, the first thing that I think it's wise to consider is the mystery of the Incarnation. Because what you find here is the one who in his divinity looked upon the nations of the world as a drop in a bucket. That one, after the incarnation, finds himself here in the thick of a crowd. And you get that contrast from... As, as God, looking on the nations, they're, they're like, not even like the dust on, uh, uh, the significant dust on the balance scale. But now, because he has humbled himself in this way, he's in the thick of a crowd. They're all around him, pressing up against him. I don't know if you can catch the contrast of that, but it's, it's an amazing contrast between those two things. Going from, from having that distance and looking on things and their insignificance to now being in the midst of it all, in the throes of it all. 
Look again and consider with that the condescending love of your Redeemer. As one who doesn't like crowds and I'm not a crowd person, this really strikes home to me. I'll do what I have to do, but if I can avoid being in a crowd, I'll I'll do it because I don't like crowds. But here's your Savior in the midst of a crowd. And surely there were all sorts of people in that crowd. Sunday school pictures of Jesus on earth tend to clean it all up for us. The dirty all look clean. You know, when you see those Sunday school coloring pages or, or pictures of what's going on, everybody's clean. The rude are portrayed as polite. Everybody around him is quite polite, and so on. The sick, the sick even look well. You know, they're kind of begging for healing, but in the picture they look pretty healthy. They don't really look ill in the sense that people can look so terrible in their illness. In those depictions, there's no pushing or or shoving. No one jostling others. Everyone's either standing or marching around in a very orderly manner. And everybody is very, very polite. And that is very, very unrealistic. And certainly not a, a true depiction of what it meant to be in a crowd at this time in this place. The reality was certainly quite different. It's not to say that Galilean crowds were nothing but sickly, filthy, and offensive. I'm not trying to imply that. On the contrary, there may have been many gracious people in the crowd. But it's unrealistic to picture these crowds as though everyone had just had a shower and picked up his or her robe or shawl at the dry cleaners before they met Jesus. It's just not realistic. And yet, that's the way it's often pictured. Now, these were living, breathing people. With all the faults and foibles and smells and corruptions that have always been a part of society in general. And here you find the Son of God, having humbled himself and taking on the likeness of men, walking among them, walking in their midst. And this is the edgy side, we might say, of his coming as Emmanuel, that is, God with us. Coming from that place where he could look on the nations and see them as nothing but the drop in the bucket, to the place where he's standing among a few hundred perhaps a thousand people or more, and he's right there in their midst with their presence, their breath on him, their, their, their anger, their anxiety, their <coughs> interest, their curiosity, all pressing up against him. We also know that among these people, when Jesus saw this crowd, they weren't all equally sincere or interested. Some came out of curiosity, and that's why they were there and pressing and pushing to the front and wanting to see him. Others were there to see a miracle, 
They'd heard that he did marvelous things, and they wanted to see him do one of those marvelous things. And still others, for no other reason than it was the popular thing to do. We're, we're going to go see Jesus. I've heard about him. He's, he's supposed to be some fantastic teacher. Let's, everybody's going to see him. Let's go see him too. too. He went to gaze and wonder at him, says uh, David Dixon in his commentary on Matthew. John Gill believed that few, if any, were there to hear the gospel preached by him and for the good of their immortal souls. The most part came with some sinister, selfish, and carnal views. We don't think of it that way, but that's probably a more realistic depiction of the scene. And then think of the limitations he voluntarily enjoyed. Because of his incarnation, he, his very God of very God, could attend to the needs of all his people at will. If all who were his were before him and all needed healing, he could say a word and all would be healed. He hears the answers, uh, uh, rather, he hears the prayers of his people worldwide in his divinity, and oh, it hears them all at once and hears each one individually. But now, in the incarnation, he's limited himself to the sense where his human ear is limited, limited and his outreach is limited, and he can only touch one at a time, hear one, touch one. And he's voluntarily limited himself to that. Not that he doesn't have the power to do more, but he's not doing that. He's walking amidst this crowd, and one after one is coming before him, and he actually wearies himself in attending to each individual. He wearies himself in his incarnate flesh. You see how condescending that is. The one who could do this without the expense of anything, any energy, any loss, any strength, chooses to walk among us and to be a testimony to us concerning his truth by going around and touching one and touching another and speaking to one and speaking to another and having them come and speak to him as individuals and shutting out others while he does. Matthew Henry says, he knew there were others as desirous to have him with them, and they must have their share of him. His being acceptable and useful in one place was no objection against, but a reason for his going to another. He's commenting on the fact that he says when he sees the crowds, he says, let's go over to the other side. And tells his disciples, let's, let's move from this place. Aware that, yes, this crowd is pressing in, making demands. Greater crowds are accumulating, and, and they're accumulating everywhere he goes. And he says, let's go across. Let's, let's leave here and go to another place and, and minister to them. Because everyone wanted a share of him in that way. This was never a concern to him in his divine nature, but here it is. Now, our text says that Jesus saw a crowd around him. 
More specifically, he saw a great or numerous multitude or throng uh, born along in what is at least suggested to be an unruly manner. These crowds are forming and they're, they're not, it's just the opposite of what I mentioned a moment ago, polite and orderly, it's not like that. There's an excitement, there's an anticipation, there's, all of that is rising in this throng. And the idea of the throng is that it's not orderly and controlled, but it's, it's sort of beyond that. Um, I think I've shared with you once before that um, I, when I was younger, went to a dump to observe bears. And there were a whole lot of other people at the dump who went to see the bears too, big group of people. And there was one man with a camera and it, in those days you didn't take pictures from your phone, you had to have a camera with a flash on it and it was at nighttime and so he was taking flash pictures of the bear. And there was a, a, a ranger there and he said, Sarah, please don't do that. The, the bear won't like that. But the man paid no attention to him and kept taking bear pictures. And the bear, who was eating garbage out of the dump, didn't like having the flash picture taken. And so he turned around and stood up on his hind legs and went, Rah! And when he did, that whole mass of people moved like one out of the dump. Now, because I had been there many times before, I pretty much knew what the bear was going to do. He dropped down on all fours and he ran the other way. But at that moment, most of the people there didn't know it. And so even those who weren't afraid or weren't concerned, they were carried away by the throng. They couldn't, they couldn't stop because the whole crowd was moving like one out of the area. And that's the kind of crowd that seems to be developing here, that kind of crowd that pulls you along with it. And it's suggested that it's in an unruly manner. And so he gave orders. He gave orders for his group to move on. And David Dixon says he did that because Christ no ways uh, loves idle gazing, nor confused confluence of curious people. He gave commandment to his disciples by ship to go over the lake of Gennesaret under the other side because he didn't like this sort of uh, uh, excited reaction to him and to what he was doing. And as we look at this and consider that what's going on here, there's lots of people who would say, well, this was the time for him to stay here, right? A crowd's gathering. That's what you, you want. You want a crowd. If you're going to preach, you don't want to preach to, to, to an empty spot. You want a crowd to be there when you're preaching. So that seems that the reaction would be, he saw, looked out and saw the crowds and said, boy, this is the place to be. Let me preach from here. But he doesn't. He says, let's leave here. And I think we can understand that because our Savior is not... Well, let me put it this way. Mere numbers did not impress him or hold him in a place. Men and women are often influenced by numbers, but the Savior was concerned with hearts. And that's why you find sometimes the blessing of the Lord 
in places where maybe there's not a great deal of popularity or not, great, not a great crowd, but there are loving people that the Lord is ministering to, and they're rejoicing in him because his eyes on the heart. Doesn't mean that he doesn't bless larger groups too, but he isn't impressed by the numbers. It's not the numbers, it's the hearts that are before him. And it was not only that he was unintimidated by the crowd, but he wasn't enamored by it either. So you want to think of both of those ways. It didn't scare him, didn't frighten him in any way, but it also didn't necessarily draw him just because it was a crowd. In Matthew 18, in verse 19, in verse 20, we read, Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And it's the being gathered in his name that's the key there. Jesus not only sees the numbers, beloved, he sees the character of the throng, which is restless and agitated in this case, and he's not inclined to bear with them. Spurgeon reminds us, he ran away from popularity. Having healed all that were sick, the royal physician sought to begin practice on fresh ground. He saw the crowds becoming dangerous and perhaps too enthusiastic, and so he took ship for the farther shore to be away from their rash acts. God is not a God of confusion, 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, but of peace. Christ will rather, says Dixon, depart than foster folly. He loves not to feed any man's curiosity, but to be profitable. He loves not worldly pomp, but to be believed into and to be loved for salvation. This was also a sort of trial of their professed interest as well. They were ready to crowd him and even to pen him in, as it were, but were they ready to follow him? That was the question. Was the attention merely convenient because he was there, or was it earnest? Were they willing to follow him? Were they willing to go after him? Would nothing but absolute necessity appeal to them? Or would they peel away when they couldn't follow him anymore, or when he wasn't convenient to them? Would they be easily discouraged? And that's why you see that part of the story following where you have the disciple and the scribe who are saying, I'll follow you anywhere, and Jesus says, okay, well, come on, because I don't have any place to go. <laughs> and he doesn't go. And the other one says, let me bury my father. And he says, let the dead bury the dead. He saw the great multitudes gathering, but he also saw what they were made of. And throughout the generations, those who profess Christ have been tried, beloved, in similar ways. Christ is with them in the comfortable and the familiar. But when he sees a rising false and uncertain tone, he leaves, knowing that his sheep know his voice and will follow him, and that the sunshine Christian will not be willing to follow him into the shadows. 
He knows that. And that kind of challenge comes to every generation where they're living comfortably with the Lord and they're rejoicing in him and then comes the trial. And the question is, will you follow me? We don't know what God may require of us personally or corporately as a church body in the days ahead. We may be asked to pick up and follow him. And the question is, are we prepared to do that? It may be to be faithful to him, we have to give up these comfortable surroundings. Are we willing to do that? If to follow him, we had to meet outside somewhere today, would we be willing to do that? Or would we, our reaction be, well, I know it's the Lord's Day, but it's awful cold out there, and uh, it's too cold for me, and I don't think I should go. There have been times, like among the covenanters, when to follow Christ, they had to meet secretly out of doors in all kinds of circumstances. But that's what was required to follow him. And there were many people who weren't willing to follow. When it was convenient, when it was close by, when it was comfortable, they were willing. But when it required something of them, they weren't willing to go. They weren't willing to follow. The sunshine Christians fell away. I spoke of Samuel Rutherford this morning. He was born in 1600, and he had a very fruitful ministry. But at one point, he was required to leave his family, to be imprisoned, and banned from preaching. And it was necessary for him to submit to those things if he was going to follow his Savior. He had to go into prison. He didn't want to, obviously, but it was necessary. He didn't want to be separated from his family, but it was necessary to follow Christ. He didn't want to give up his pulpit because he loved preaching the word of God to God's people, but it was necessary in following his Savior to do so. And in the midst of it, he wrote about how much he missed those things, how much he missed his liberty, how much he missed his family, and how much he missed being able to preach the word of God. They were all dear to him, he said. But then he added this, that Christ was dearer. And he found more peace with his Savior and friend than he ever could have enjoyed in those familiar and comfortable surroundings in his prison cell. He was willing to follow him. And that's what Jesus put forth, puts forth here. Jesus looks on us in our generation, and there are great many clamoring after him in various ways. But it remains to be seen just who will be willing to follow. Mark adds an extra uh, element to the story. He tells us, and he began to teach them the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciple, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. 
For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. We need to ask ourselves, are we willing to follow? wherever it may call us to go. Because the eye of our Savior is on us. He knows our hearts. He knows who will follow him into the shadows once that's required of those who would truly follow him. Let's pray for the grace and strength to be faithful to him, to be faithful in this year. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these scenes from the life of our Savior. And we pray, Lord, that as we look on his looking out on this world, that, Lord, will be blessed by the consideration of all of them. We pray, Lord, that this one will sink into our hearts. The condescending love of the Savior is so precious. And the question is, are we followers? Are we true disciples? Will we follow him into the darkness if that's what's required of us? Or will we compromise and stay in the comfortable zone where we can feel satisfied, comfortable in this world, and have the approval of men. Lord, save us from ourselves, because by nature, that's the way we would all be. Rather, Lord, stir up our hearts to be willing to look for that blessing of fellowship with you that Rutherford enjoyed, even in the loss of the things that were so dear to him. May you be dearer to us than all, dear Savior. We ask these things in his precious name.